Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. I thought I knew what DNA was. I knew it carried genetic information. I'd seen the picture of the double helix at least a hundred times. Imagine what it took for us to figure that out and the shifts in perspective that that understanding made possible. But we've taken our understanding of DNA to another level. We're beginning to take advantage of some of the properties of DNA that have served nature so well, but in ways that nature may have never pursued. We build with it. We tap its capacity to carry information to enhance our ability to see and to study molecular interactions and the inner life of cells. As a medium for nanoscale engineering, DNA is smart, tough, flexible, and programmable. New methods in DNA self-assembly enable the precise engineering of nanoscale structures to produce revolutionary devices in computer science, microscopy, biology, and more. I'm going to speak about this cutting-edge work with Wyss Institute core faculty members William Shi and Pang Yin and associate faculty member Wesley Wong. The mission of the Wyss Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Our bodies, and all living systems, accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than any entity yet designed by humans. By emulating nature's principles for self-organizing and self-regulating, Wyss Research develops innovative engineering solutions for healthcare, energy, architecture, robotics, and manufacturing. William Shi is an associate professor in the Department of Biological Chemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at Harvard Medical School and the Department of Cancer Biology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He oversees an effort to apply synthetic biology approaches to the development of self-assembling DNA nanostructures and devices for use in biomedical applications. In 2008, she received a new innovator award from the National Institutes of Health. Welcome, William Shi, to Disruptive. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. How and why does someone gravitate to a newly emerging field? William recalls an experience in his youth that gave him a new sense of himself. So I first started to get interested in science in general pretty young age. Uh, I'd say when I was 13 years old, because uh, like many schools, my school was uh, asked the students to be involved in science fairs. And for a science fair, you're supposed to do something completely new, come up with a new hypothesis, and then find an answer to that. And I hadn't been exposed to uh, any, any kind of active role in, in, uh, in science before. So that was something uh, exhilarating, just to be able to imagine myself at the frontier of, uh, of a new work. So I could imagine myself <laughs> as an explorer. And uh, I had very supportive parents, and they helped me get in contact. I, I grew up in San Diego, and they helped me get in contact with a professor at UCSD, uh, Bill Loomis. And he was uh, extremely supportive. And actually, after I talked to him, he, he let me come into his lab for some time to carry out the experiments. So uh, as a 13-year-old who didn't know anything, uh, but that, that was really fantastic. So that was, that was very exciting. And uh, I got hooked on the bug of uh, just kind of being on, on the frontier of knowledge by being able to pose new questions. When she enrolled at Harvard as an undergrad, he joined the laboratory of Tom Kirkhausen, now at Harvard's medical school. In uh, Tom's lab, what we were doing and what he continues to do is to study molecular machinery that's involved in import of nutrients and other molecules from outside the cell. And it was, it was a lot of fun, but one thing that was kind of, uh, I found a little bit dissatisfying was that at that time, the exact molecular shape of these machines wasn't known. So oftentimes in, in research, you're, you're just trying to get bits and pieces of knowledge about 
because you're at the frontier. But I found as the activity of science, somehow it, it felt a little bit dissatisfying to be constructing models of basically little blobs. So what I learned about myself is that I like to think about things in more concrete terms. I like to have a, a face of the molecule. I learned I, I like having a, a three-dimensional picture to, to think about a very detailed one as opposed to a vague one. But Xi's lessons haven't all been self-reflective. So the next thing I learned was that the molecules of life were not evolved for people to study them. They're operating under different constraints. And so nature doesn't care about your PhD thesis or how hard, is, or how hard it is for you to produce enough of this molecule that you can study it. And it has no sympathies about that, well, you need to go to sleep. And uh, it needs, wouldn't it be nice if nature had made the molecule very stable so that it would survive to the next day so you don't have to start from scratch? I personally get more satisfaction out of trying to, to understand how molecules work by creating new ones and then trying to recapitulate function synthetically. Uh, the, the idea of being able to build it myself and being able to build it in a way that would be easy to study <laughs> and, uh, would be much more satisfying. So in, in a way, it's the same, same thing a, a biologist would select a model organism, like a yeast is very easy to study or a fruit fly is very easy right. to study compared to a human being. So a synthetic biologist, to me, just takes it one step further. So instead of selecting a yeast, they decide to build a new device, a uh, new, new, new model system, and they, they, in a sense, have even more control yeah. over the uh, ability to, to study these things. Evolution takes its time. Can we, by following nature's principles, accelerate the process in ways that serve our survival and the rest of life? These amazing machines were all created through this uh, blind, I mean, very wasteful process because you, uh, for evolution to work, billions and trillions of failed designs need to be discarded. But through the eons, it produces this uh, amazing function. Why does William Shi choose to work with DNA? If you look at most of the functional machines within a cell, most of those are proteins. And so naturally, one might be drawn to using proteins as, as your clay to build functional devices. But what I realized, and a lot of other people realized, is, well, although nucleic acids like DNA and RNA are less versatile, they still can do some things. And they have the virtue that they're much, much easier to work with. So it's a trade-off. So you trade off the versatility of proteins with the ease of human malleability and, and things you can do in a shorter time frame with DNA or RNA. There's plenty of nucle that nucleic acids can do for my lifetime. Right, <laughs> I, don't, exactly. I don't need to do everything else that proteins do. So that was that was the trade-off. So I, I I think proteins are wonderful, but nucleic acids are just easier to work with. And uh, and for me, what what do I mean by easier to work with? That means for the same amount of effort, I think I can create a much more elaborate system. I can ask much more interesting t questions to me, because if it's if it's easier, that means for the same amount of time, you you could build something bigger and more complicated. We get down to basics. What is DNA? DNA is an extremely important molecule, and there's two images, I think, that really pop out. One is that it's this physical repository of heritable genetic information that determines our characteristics, how we differ from other people. Uh, and it's genetic recipe for producing all the different kinds of molecules that end up building us. And then the, the second image that I think is, is powerful is, again, the physical manifestation of it is the double helix. So everybody knows that DNA is a double helix. The founder of my field of DNA nanotechnology, Ned Seaman, he had this big uh, conceptual breakthrough, which is, well, I know that 
DNA has a biological role. The main biological role seems to be heritable information. So it's just a kind of passive, in a sense, passive store of coded information. And, it, and that's translated into functional molecules made out of RNA or protein. And so the physical form of the DNA itself, in, in a sense, is just symbolic. It's not functional most of the time. But as a chemist, he said, okay, I'm, I'm going to ignore the historical role of DNA as just kind of passive repository, and I'm going to take advantage of its physical properties to directly do the dirty work. So I'm going to give DNA in a synthetic, synthetic world, I'm going to give DNA the, the uh, main protagonist role and, uh, and actually build structures to function directly. I ask Shi, what specifically makes DNA so appealing to work with? The key property of DNA that makes it so attractive as a building block for human engineers is that the rules for specific association of different sequences of, of DNA are so simple, local, and robust that DNA is, is a linear polymer of four different kinds of building blocks. So they're either, we call them A's, C's, G's, or T's. And we know that A's are shaped complementary to T's, C's are shaped complementary with G's. And the opposite pairings don't like each other so much. So A doesn't like to pair with itself or G or C and, and so on and so forth. And what that means is that if you have a particular linear sequence of DNA that's, let's say, 16 units long, then it really likes to pair with a 16 mer of the exact complementary sequence. So something that's AACGT, that's a 5 mer, really likes to pair with ACGTT, which is the exact base complementary sequence. And if you have any mismatches, any deviations from that, then those sequences don't really like to link together so much. And what does that mean? That means that the, um, if you have a, a soup filled with all these different molecules, they're constantly bumping into each other. And uh, if they have the perfect match of sequence, then when they bump into each other, they'll end up sticking to each other for a long time. But if they have the wrong sequence, then they'll bump into each other and they'll fall apart. If your goal is to try to build a specific structure out of these components that are jostling around, bumping into each other, then what you really need most of all is the ability to control the specificity of interaction. Uh, and so that's, that's the trick for engineering self-assembling systems is how do you coax the molecules? You have these hundreds of different components. You're just throwing them together and they're jostling around. How do you make sure that they assemble into the right, or, right structure and not the trillions and trillions of wrong structures? Or maybe a jigsaw puzzle is another good example. So if you have the thousand pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and you throw those into the drying machine and press tumble, if they just decided they all, every piece liked each other, every other one exactly as much, then you're not going to generate the correct solution to the puzzle. It's only if they are very, very picky and they reject all the fits that aren't quite right. Now, I can see that tapping into and directing molecular self-assembly has enormous potential, but I want to know why the small parts want to self-assemble. What's in it for them? I think about it in terms of, of basically binding and letting go. And uh, at this scale, Again, think about it as jigsaw pieces that are tumbling in your dryer. Now, if the two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle randomly bump into each other and they have really fantastic shape complementary, they really fit together, so there's kind of an attractive force uh, between the two, then they'll be able to resist the tumbling uh, energy oh. from, the, from the dryer. And The, the they, urge to stick will, right, right. will surpass right, the right. urge, urge to tumble. Exactly, exactly. 
And so uh, that's basically a very good analogy to what happens on the molecular scale because in, on the molecular scale, we have thermal energy. So it's the, the temperature, uh, heat-based heat uh, jostling of molecules that's opposing the attractive potential of these uh, molecular jigsaw puzzles. So it's, it's all about being above the threshold. So if you have enough energy that holds you together, you're able to oppose the thermal jostling. And that's self-assembly? That's, that's basically self-assembly. And the, the beauty of self-assembly is that uh, it's a very efficient means to construct intricate three-dimensional shapes, uh, especially using very small components. Uh, it turns out self-assembly solves all the other problems of going from some simple linear strings to a complex three-dimensional shape because the linear string is basically programmed by self-assembly to fold up on itself into a complex 3D shape. And then those 3D shapes will find each other and build up spontaneously the larger hierarchical three-dimensional shape. And this has a, a lot of advantages, for example, scalability. So what if you want, had some task and you wanted a thousand trillion of these molecules to you want to make an army of little nanofabricators or something like this? Well, It'd be difficult if you if you needed a million trillion robots to build each one of those copies, but instead if they just kind of built themselves, then in that sense it's it's another advantage because they don't necessarily require any auxiliary machinery. Once in order to build once them. the process starts. Yeah, once right once the process starts. So how do you program them? There's been some chemistry that's amazing chemistry Nobel Prize winning chemistry worked out many decades ago that allows us to using the tools of synthetic organic chemistries, just mixing big pots of chemicals together. Not really self-assembly, just brute force chemistry. <laughs> um, but it works. And you can uh, basically mash together in a single test tube trillions of copies of just one sequence of, that you specify. And so the, the basic way that it works is that you might have a, a solid support that starts with the letter G, and then you bathe that solid support with the letter C, and using the tools of chemistry, the C will just, you'll get one copy of C that will go on top of the G. And then, but then that C is capped, so it won't grow anymore. So after you've, you've made, you've now added a C, now you can wash away the extra C and you're left with CG on your support. Now you can do a chemistry to basically unmask the end of the C so it can now accept another subunit. And so now you repeat the process. So you have the cycles of add monomer, wash away, unmask the end, and then now repeat the cycle. And in that way, you can build up any linear sequence that you want. So this is pretty uh, remarkable synthetic chemistry and that allows us to, to build up any sequence we want. So what you're throwing now into the dryer, the soup, whatever, is these strands that you've programmed. That's right, yes. And so given that, they, that you, you've programmed these strands, you kind of know where they'll stick and where they won't. And you can predict what the self-assembly will produce. Yes, and yeah. So the amazing thing is is that we actually have that control, and, and it has to do with the fact that uh, for DNA or RNA, that they really, really like to stick when they have the the perfectly matched sequence. In other words, they have enough energy; they get a lot of energy, attractive energy, when the uh, shape is perfectly complementary, the sequence is perfectly complementary. And if you have any mismatches, then it loses that attractive energy. And because those tendencies are so strong, then we have a lot of control. And this is not at all trivial if we, if we take a comparison of proteins. So uh, if you were to ask somebody to, okay, design a sequence of amino acids, that will do the same thing. So I, I want 100 set of 20 amino acid uh, proteins, 
and I want them all to associate in exactly the right way. So I want protein one to only interact with protein two, um, and et cetera, et cetera. Turns out this is an extremely difficult problem because the rules of how proteins associate are far more complicated. Than DNA. Than, than for DNA or, or RNA. And so again, this goes back to life is short. So, um, <laughs> so if, if give, given our current state of knowledge, we're going to make a lot more progress trying to build out of DNA. I mean, eventually, uh, people working with the proteins will, in a sense, they'll catch up. Now that we're able to program DNA and build with it, what are the practical applications? Uh, one of the class of applications that I think people are most excited about for any kind of so-called molecular robots are in the space of human healthcare. That can we create little molecular entities that help us to do early diagnosis of disease so we, we can treat the disease earlier before it's too late? Or can we directly create therapeutics that can uh, affect change directly on human health? And my favorite inspiration in this space is the immune system, because that really has been described as the ultimate nanotechnology, that uh, our body has limited physical resources and it needs to marshal them in very wise ways against the different kinds of threats. And our, our immune system has to be very smart about this because it can't stockpile weapons against every possible uh, threat to our body. It needs to make them on demand. So it needs to know what kind of uh, weapons to produce. It needs to know how much to produce. It needs to know where to send them. So it's making all these kinds of decisions and it creates uh, many different shapes in order to carry this out. It needs to program these uh, molecular robots like immune cells to migrate to the right place. The so body produces about, its own molecular robots. That's right. That's right. So I'm talking about um, that this is not, it's not just crazy talk. So the body, <laughs> the body produces molecular robots. So the body is the existence proof for advanced nanotechnology. And what we're hoping to do is to use that inspiration to at least in initial phases, create a pale shadow of that because it's, it's hard. Um, so to try to take the first steps to creating a synthetic and artificial version, kind of weak, not very functional, but semi-functional version of these advanced nanorobots that the body can produce, and through the fullness of time, eventually match the sophistication of what the body can produce. So maybe I, you know, I can envision a world where 50 years from now, which is not that long, really, I mean, I'll probably be dead, but uh, 50 years from now, what if we have the, the know-how to produce molecular robots that are, in many areas, as effective as the immune system? That would be amazing. Or maybe 100 years from now, we can make a lot of different robots that, in many cases, are far more sophisticated than the immune system. I think that's possible as well. I realize for us to be ahead of nature is, is an odd thing, but for a specific individual, it's not so bad, right? In other words, specific individuals can lack certain immune oh. responses. And yes, in that case, sure. even though ours wouldn't be as good as the one nature would produce, for them, ours is... Yeah, certainly, like, like you said, certainly um, people uh, with a genetic deficiency, they may need some, something uh, in, a, in their immune system needs to be shored up. But also, you, you can think about the way the immune system, I mean, this is not a knock on nature, but the immune <laughs> system you know, evolved... Uh, basically is trying to produce a, a kind of almost one size fits all for that's primarily useful for our ancestors running along the savannas. So completely different lifestyle, completely different diet. Completely, completely different, different threats. Yeah, completely different threats. So um, and evolution on a natural scale moves much more slowly. So you can forgive nature for not producing people that are perfectly adapted to diets of 
uh, high fructose corn syrup <laughs> and trans fatty acids and watching lots of television. These associate faculty member Wesley Wong, who received his Ph.D. in physics at Harvard, is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School in the departments of biological chemistry and molecular pharmacology and pediatrics, and an investigator at the program in cellular and molecular medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. His group develops and applies novel methods in single molecular manipulation and detection, combining approaches from a variety of disciplines, including physics, molecular biology, chemistry, and engineering. Welcome, Wesley Wong, to Disruptive. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here today. Wesley believes we all start out as scientists. I have a two-year-old at home, and it's amazing to see how she basically tries to, like, integrate her experiences to make sense of the world, how she's always doing experiments with gravity at the dinner table, this type of thing. Though my mom always tells me that before I was verbal, she would often see me sitting there counting my fingers. So I think I've always been kind of into quantitative <laughs> science, perhaps. I don't have any external validation of that, as a scientist would say. In a toy store, as a nine-year-old, he found a book about physics for kids. I remember asking my mom to buy it and flipping through it and just really falling in love with the fact that, you know, you could really understand the physical world. You could really understand the world based on simple principles. I mean, maybe I didn't process all this at the time, but I think it's a miracle for someone. Like, when you're at the stage in life where you're trying to, like, figure out the world, make sense of it, to realize that the world follows these simple rules that are actually understandable and like unchangeable, and that's somehow comforting in a way. Wong's PhD is in physics, and he admits to feeling like a bit of an outsider in the DNA self-assembly field. I almost feel like hopefully this will inspire people that like if even he can do it, like if even someone who isn't trained in, in molecular biology and, and chemistry can, can do these things, you know, I feel like people should say like, you know, I can do it too. How did he get involved with building with DNA? There was a very exciting pioneering work that was done by Paul Rothman some years ago um, regarding this idea of DNA origami. And, and when I was a kid, I always loved, I loved origami, you know, taking a piece of paper, folding it into a, into a swan or folding it into a flower or something like that. And when I learned about this, it was amazing to hear that you could actually do this at the nanoscale. Yeah. And so you yourself wouldn't necessarily have to go in and make the folds, but if you program the material just right, it'll self-assemble and, and fold up in just the right way for you. So the nuts and bolts of it are quite simple. Just like with, de with normal origami, you typically start with, you know, normal origami, you start with this, this, a piece of paper. Let's say you want to make a swan. You basically have to come up with what steps of folding, like what folding steps will actually result in a swan. With DNA origami, you basically start with a long strand of single-stranded DNA. And so the typical one that a lot of people use is, is called M13. And then in order to get it to fold up at specific ways, what you then do is you mix it with what they call staple strands. And so as I said before, you know, DNA is, um, likes to pair up in specific ways. You know, the A's, the A bases pair up the T's, the G's with the C's. So what you can do is um, if you have a small piece of DNA, and let's say the first half is complementary to one region of this long piece of DNA, so it kind of will stick there specifically, and the other half is complementary to another part of it, when you mix it together, that staple strand will basically bring those two parts close together. And if you um, design just the right soup of staple strands, you can get that long single-strand piece of DNA to fold into almost anything that you want it to. And so, um, you know, these days, in order to get something like a staple strand, it's as easy as going to a website from a company that, um, that sells it, and then you type in the sequence you want, like, you know, Gattaca, 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 and then it arrives in the mail, and you get a little vial with the staple strands that you want. So all you really have to do is mix together the DNA, and then, you know, through the magic of self-assembly and the beauty of, of you know, thermodynamics or, or physics, 
um, these strands will self-assemble into the shape that you program them to. Isn't that unbelievable? Wong came to this field because it had potential to help him in his research. One of the things that we wanted to make was, was a simple mechanical switch. One of the standard um, measurements that we'll do in, in single molecule um, biophysics, in, in particular this, this sub-area of force spectroscopy, is we're often interested in what the mechanical strength is between two molecules. So a lot of the vitality of life comes from these weak interactions between molecules in your body. You know, so as I said, you know, DNA will pair together and come apart. You know, what puts your nose here and your ear here? It's like we have all these different cells and the cells have adhesion molecules on them and those adhesion molecules allow them to stick together in specific ways. And so one thing that my lab studies is basically the mechanical strength of these molecular interactions. And so we'll pull on these things because in some ways it's just like the kinds of experiments you might do in like high school physics where you'll like get a spring scale and you pull on something to see how strong it is, but much, much smaller. You know, but this is at the nanoscale. At the nanoscale. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so as a tool in order to do this, I, I had this idea of basically making uh, a mechanical switch that jumps between two states. So if uh, two molecules of interest are bound to each other, the switch will be closed. And then if that bond breaks, the switch will open. So basically making the experiment simple by getting this kind of very specific binary signature. And so when I learned about um, DNA origami, I kind of felt like if William can make this amazing three-dimensional structure, surely I can make this very simple you know, mechanical switch. And so um, the amazing thing about DNA origami was from the time I had the idea for the molecular construct and, and, and how to do it to the time we basically had actual material was probably inside of a week. And so um, a lot of DNA origami starts with a long strand of DNA, typically um, people use M13. But what we did is instead of getting that to fold up into something like you know, a happy face or, or something sophisticated, all that I wanted to do was to use it as basically a lanyard to hold molecules of interest near to each other. All the proteins that we're interested in will chemically link to small pieces of DNA that basically act to tile this M13. Um, and then when we mix them together, all of these strands basically tile along the M13 to form a double-stranded piece. Um, but by choosing what sequence of DNA we attach the protein to, we can control their position along the strand. We'll then put anchors at the, at the two ends of that basically string of proteins and use, that, um, use those anchors as handles to grab those two ends with, um, say, beads that are held in optical traps. And if the proteins of interest that we've tethered to it are bound, the tether will be very short. But if the bond between those proteins breaks, the tether becomes longer. And so we can basically see this mechanical signature. We can break bonds and bring them back together again. And that's and, our DNA nanoswitch. And why do you do that? So for example, if we want to understand how strong a bond is between two molecules, we kind of have to go beyond the standard biochemistry that people do in a test tube to really understand the molecular machines that are in our body, to understand systems under force, understand systems out of equilibrium. And so we use these... Um, these single molecule force instruments in order to do that. And so these nanoswitches give us a way to do that in a reliable way. Now, and this thing that you're doing of finding out, you know, yeah. measuring the force, and so, what's the bigger picture that that's part of? Why are you doing that? There are a lot of systems in the body that I think that you really need to understand them under stresses and out of equilibrium in order to understand how they work. So one thing that we're studying is how the body responds to injury, how processes like blood clotting take place. And so you could imagine that you know, cells that are going in your bloodstream, they're not like in a test tube, they're subjected to fairly large forces. And, and one thing people are learning is that in order to understand how they work, you basically 
have to understand how they respond to force. Another system that we're studying is hearing. So all of the listeners out there, you know, what's happening when you hear this podcast is the mechanical vibrations that are created by the speaker or the headphones that you're wearing end up getting converted into signals that your brain can understand. And this process known as mechanotransduction um, is really a force-driven process. And that's one other thing that we're studying. Though Wong and his team built these tools to fulfill specific functions, they're finding they have a lot of other applications. I love my, my job. I love being a scientist. Um, I love doing things and coming, you know, that other people are not doing, come up with new ideas. One kind of mental game I like to play is, um, is like, what is the thing that would make the last thing I did totally obsolete and then try to do that next? <laughs> and so I guess while I was working on optical tweezers, you know, it was a little frustrating to basically study one molecule at a time. And I kept thinking like, you know, what is one way that we could do this, you know, maybe a thousand times faster, you know, a hundred times cheaper. And that's um, what resulted in this idea of the centrifuge force microscope, which is a way of instead of applying forces to one molecule at a time, to apply it to thousands at a time by, by simply, I kind of like it because it's kind of super old school. Like if hundreds of years ago, people even understood what a molecule was, they could have made the same uh, device in, in some ways. Um, and so that kind of led to the centrifuge force microscope. But as soon as that was working, I kept thinking like, what would be the thing that would make this not obsolete, but replace it for a large range of things? Is there some way that we could also study the interactions between molecules in a way which is maybe thousands of times, orders of magnitude even faster and orders of magnitude even cheaper? And so then I started getting hung up in this idea of like, can we do instrument-free interaction analysis? And so we tried a number of different things in the lab. And it was actually my, my postdoc and, and buddy, Ken Halverson. We, we had made these DNA nanoswitches for this other purpose. And then on the other side, we are also experimenting with different ways for making interaction measurements without requiring a microscope, without requiring lasers, without requiring any instrumentation at all. And then it was actually Ken who noticed that the nanoswitches would make a perfect candidate for that. DNA nanoswitches, they switch between two states in order to report if molecules are binding or unbinding. And the way that they were designed was to read out their states at the single molecule level. But what we realized was that there's actually a much easier way to read out their states, and that's just by running a gel. And so if you're not familiar with gel electrophoresis, it's one of the most common, um, commonly used, inexpensive standard techniques in biomedical research. Basically, it's very easy to do. You, you take um, what they call, a, 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 in our case, a slab gel, which you could basically you could think of as maybe like a piece of jello, and then you put it in an electric field, and then molecules in that piece of jello will move at different speeds depending on their size, but also depending on their topology. And so when the NAS which is closed, the DNA forms a loop. And then when the NAS which is open, it, it's just a, a linear piece. And so they run reliably at different speeds, which really um, makes this, you know, these techniques available to almost everyone because it's, it's really pennies of reagents. And, and all you really need to do is be able to use a pipette and pipette things in and, and, and run a gel. And so one thing in my lab I always like to think about is, you know, can we kind of democratize technologies? Can we take things that only a handful of people can do who are specialists in the field to make those things available to everyone? And so I think the DNA nanoswitches are a great example of that. You know, we're actually developing nanoswitches as a way for a wide range of activities from high throughput drug discovery to um, ultra high sensitivity detection. We, we have one version that is able, you know, it changes shape in response to um, molecules in the environment. And so we can use it as a way to detect things in a, in a very inexpensive but ultra-sensitive way. And we think that has a lot of exciting application. Drug discovery as well, we're, we're looking at for drug candidates for specific types of interactions because we can, again, use the DNA nanoswitches to do high-throughput drug screening. V's core faculty member Peng Yin, prior to joining the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School in the V's, 
graduated from Peking University with a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and a Bachelor in Economics, earned a Ph.D. in Computer Science and a Master's of Science in Molecular Cancer Biology from Duke University, and was a senior postdoctoral scholar in bioengineering and computer science at Caltech Center for Biological Circuit Design. Welcome, Pang Yin, to Disruptive. Great to be here. Pang Yin started graduate school in biology, but was quickly attracted to the emerging interface of biology and computer science, particularly to a group of scientists working in the nascent field known as structural DNA technology and DNA computing. Their idea is to engineer DNA as a synthetic material, and to make artificial structures that can be engineered to demonstrate a particular shape or a particular dynamic behavior. Some of them can even be programmed to compute. I find it quite amazing that by merely specifying the digital information encoded in these DNA molecules, and you can actually precisely prescribe their physical behavior. Over the years, it has also become increasingly more clear and there's uh, such ability to precisely engineer molecules in a digital precise fashion and uh, holds a tremendous promise to potentially transform technology and science and society. Pang Ying and his colleagues at the VIS have developed what they call DNA brick self-assembly. The DNA brick is one particular method for making complex DNA structure in two dimensions and three dimensions. A DNA brick is a short piece of DNA that Pong compares to a Lego brick. Two DNA bricks combine to each other if they share complementary segments. By programming the complementary segments of the binding pattern between different DNA bricks, you can design these DNA bricks to self-assemble into particular structures. If there are uh, the, uh, some certain target shape you want to design, and you can engineer DNA bricks that, that can self-assemble into that particular pattern. I asked Pang Yin about the challenges they faced in developing the bricks. I think maybe one of the challenges uh, is more a conceptual challenge uh, rather than a technical challenge. An alternative way of uh, making complex nanostructure using DNA uh, is known as scaffolded DNA origami. Scaffolded DNA origami was the best-known and dominant method for making complex and discrete synthetic DNA structures. From its initial report by Paul Rothman at Caltech in 2006 until the DNA brick method was reported in 2012. Pang Yin explains that the basic idea with scaffolded DNA origami is to use a long scaffold strand and design many short synthetic DNA fragments that can assemble with this long scaffold and tie it into a particular pattern that you want. It works very well, and uh, as a thinking uh, in the field was that uh, and the essential enabling feature for DNA origami to work so well uh, is the utilization of this long scaffold strand. Uh, it was thought as an essential feature for making complex structures. Uh, so DNA brick really departed from this paradigm. In the DNA brick assembly method, Pong's team got rid of the long scaffold completely, simply programming the binding pattern into individual small DNA brick monomers. The success of DNA bricks actually, I would say, came as a big surprise to the field, and, uh, and there is a different way of thinking about how to make DNA structures. They initially demonstrated construction of two-dimensional DNA brick structures by engineering the DNA bricks to bind each other in a coplanar fashion. Then later, we modified the binding pattern engineering such that the DNA brick can also bind to each other in a perpendicular fashion, and this enables us to make uh, discrete three-dimensional structures. In the 2012 initial demonstration, 
They reported 100 distinct different 2D patterns on a 100 nanometer scale, including a full set of letters of the alphabet and complex Chinese characters. Artificial DNA structures can be interfaced with other functional molecules, proteins of particular interest, fluorescent dyes, and so on. And the medical field is particularly interested in using the DNA structures to enable nanofabrication of inorganic materials. DNA by itself is not necessarily a good electronic material or photonic material. However, if you can transfer the precise control of molecular geometry that you have with DNA structures to other diverse functional inorganic materials, and this could enable many interesting applications. The team has invented a number of different ways to do this. In one method, they were able to use DNA structures to produce graphene particles of a particular shape. And in another, we're able to use three-dimensional DNA containers as a mold to cast inorganic particles of a particular three-dimensional geometry. DNA is quite unique in the sense that by specifying the sequence of DNA components, we are able to engineer DNA strands to self-organize into complex structures of our choice. And, and this is a quite unique property of DNA for nanoconstruction. Punk's team first engineers a DNA container and then attaches a tiny particle in the interior of the container. Now, under suitable chemical conditions, this small particle can trigger chemical reactions such that it can gradually grow into larger particles until the larger growing particle touches the interior surface of the DNA container. Now, they engineer the DNA container to be rigid enough that the growth of the particle will be effectively stopped, thus copying the geometry of the cavity of the container. Peng Yin appreciates how a Vise press release communicated this process. Uh, they identified a picture where, as in the shows, and uh, a Japanese art of making cubic shape watermelon. And uh, the idea there is that you grow watermelon in a yes, cubic yes, shape yes. container. And I think that so, so we are essentially doing similar things, but on the nanometer scale. <laughs> right, one right. Billion times smaller. <laughs> a, b- a billion times <laughs> smaller. Yes. That's right, yeah. Whatever the power of molecular programming, it isn't to help us have quicker, longer-lasting, smaller computers. Rather, it's to use computers within molecules to do programmable molecular tasks. Like Wesley Wong, Peng Yin has been working on switches. One example that we recently reported is a very simple nanomechanical device composed of, in this case, not DNA, but RNA, which is a similar molecule to DNA and from biology. And this RNA nanomechanical device, we call it a switch. RNA is particularly useful for engineering nanomechanical devices that can function in living cells, and this can be challenging to engineer with DNA. It can detect the presence of another RNA molecule, RNA trigger. Then when it detects the presence of a particular trigger, a total switch can turn on the production of some protein of, of interest. So essentially, it performs a very rudimentary logical function. If detecting A a being the RNA signature, then produce B, B being the protein. So if A and B. In some unpublished work, Pong's team has been working to compose these simple toll-hole switches into more complex computing devices. This can be encoded in living cells, can be functional in living cells. And uh, some of these uh, uh, RNA toll switch-based uh, computing devices can perform quite amazing computation. Uh, maybe that's in molecular computing devices could be useful for evaluating uh, the internal states of uh, living cells. 
Can you foresee being able to use this toehold switch to change the behavior of cells within a human organ to treat a flaw in the human computer? So I should clarify that as a toggle switch we have engineered is still at its early stage. It only uh, currently functions in bacteria. It turns out that the toehold switch, initially designed to function in living cells, can also function on the paper-based platform invented by James Collins's lab at the Wies. Basically, what they did was that they took the essential uh, cellular components for making genetic networks, and then they freeze-dried these components on a piece of paper. Uh, when you add a drop of water on the freeze-dried components on the paper, then they can be functional as a reconstitute genetic networks. What is DNA-based microscopy, and why is that an important field? Here, I think we are referring to using DNA molecular probes to enable very high resolution imaging and a very high multiplexing imaging. Multiplexing refers to the ability to simultaneously visualize many distinct molecular species. Biological organisms are essentially molecular systems in the sense that they are composed of uh, biomolecules. Uh, if you want to understand the biology uh, in a deeper fashion, then fundamentally we need to get a molecular scale understanding. But when people try to visualize biology on the molecular scale, and I think we face two broad challenges. And uh, one challenge is that we cannot see things clearly. So we have blurred vision. And when we look at molecules, especially single molecules, and we simply cannot see, uh, and see them very clearly. So another challenge that uh, is that we are partially colorblind in the sense that we cannot see many different molecular species and, uh, and simultaneously. The study of molecular structures had reached a point where we were technically unable to go further because of those two challenges. Using DNA, we've been able to push beyond those boundaries. Fluorescent microscopy is one of the powerful ways to image biology, but a fluorescent dye molecule can be less than one nanometer in diameter. Looked at under a microscope, you see a big blob. This is known as a diffraction limit. In the past decade, people have invented ways to bypass such diffraction limits to make it possible to visualize biological samples with very high resolution on the nanometer scale. One of the more traditional ways to do this is to label the biological targets with particular fluorescent dye molecules that can be turned on and off or bright and dark using particular wavelength lasers. By stimulating the dye with wavelength lasers in a particular pattern, you can cause the dye molecules to start to blink. Typically, this kind of uh, uh, imaging method involves sophisticated equipment that could cost you anywhere between half a million to one million dollars. And the DNA-based imaging and uh, one particular method called DNA Punt uh, enable us to achieve such a blinking pattern using common microscope. If there's a certain target you want to visualize, you can attach a small fragment of a DNA strand to the target. This is called a docking strand. Then, you have dye-labeled complementary strands in the solution that are called imager strands. The complementarity between the docking strands and the imager strand enables the imager strand to transiently bind to the docking strand. And when the imager strand transiently binds to the docking strand, the fluorescent dye becomes transiently immobilized, and under the microscope, it appears as a bright spot. By precisely engineering the binding energies between the imager strand and the docking strand, 
and also by controlling the concentration of the imager strand in the solution, it's possible to precisely engineer the blinking pattern of the targets. By sequentially localizing the center of a flashing spot, which responds to the position of the targets, you can construct very high-resolution optical images of the micro-targets. Dingipend enables you to uh, visualize structures with a high, very high resolution. So it solves a one challenge for molecular scale imaging, that is to enable ones, one to see things very clearly. But another challenge is to label many different targets with distinct dyes and visualize them simultaneously. Typically, when people perform fluorescent imaging, they're able to visualize no more than six different species. Peng Yin's team has developed a solution for this as well, which they call exchange paint. Exchange paint is idea to enable one to simultaneously visualize many different structures and uh, many different uh, molecular targets. By introducing labeled imager strands one species at a time, you can sequentially visualize the distinct targets. After each stage, a simple buffer solution exchange flushes away a particular imager strand species. And by introducing a new solution which contains distinct imager strand sequences, you can visualize another target species. And this process can be repeated sequentially many times. At the end of the imaging cycle, you can put them all together, and then you get a composite uh, image and that uh, simultaneously shows uh, the different targets. What is this going to allow us to do in terms of understanding biology? In terms of uh, what this can enable us to study biology, I think that there are many fascinating possibilities. Uh, again, fundamentally, this will enable us to visualize molecular structures so much more clearly, and uh, it will enable us to visualize many of them simultaneously. One direction is to visualize neuronal cells. Pong believes that to simultaneously visualize different proteins at the synapse of the neuron with high resolution could help us to understand how these neurons work. I think a very, very interesting direction is to uh, visualize the chromosome structure in the nucleus. So, uh, for example, human chromosome can measure, genome can measure about two meters uh, in length, but it's uh, compact in a tiny uh, three-dimensional space on the micron scale. Now, and uh, the ability to visualize the precise organization of chromosomes in the nucleus would be something quite fascinating and very useful for studying uh, nucleus biology. Let me step back a bit to the bigger picture. How does what you're doing with DNA compare to what nature does? So nature primarily uses DNA and as a genetic information carrying material. We are directly using DNA as a nanoscale construction material to make nanostructures, to make a dynamic nanosystems, or even do computation that using DNA-based nanoscale molecular devices. So I think this kind of uh, physical control of DNA molecules to demonstrate the user-specified and uh, physical behavior uh, is something very different from what nature does. Mm-hmm. So, so everything that we've been talking about, really, is taking something which occurs in nature, which nature developed, but using capacities that nature wasn't using. There's also a very deep connection with what nature does, or what biology does, and with uh, uh, what we are doing here. In the sense that uh, uh, the, the biological organisms are really a gigantic collection of molecular machines. The form and the function and development biology 
and is uh, directed largely by the sequence information encoded in the genome. But what we are doing here in the lab are essentially we are doing something fundamentally very similar in the sense that by specifying the digital information or the sequence of the DNA strands, um, we are able to precisely engineer molecular structures, molecular machines composed of DNA. In other words, although nature wasn't using it for the function you're using it for, the principle of how nature performed its functions is what you realized and what you're using to perform other functions. Both nature and uh, both, uh, and what we are doing in the lab are using digital information carrying molecules to perform complex molecular tasks. All three of today's guests are joining with Radhika Nagpal of Visa's bio-inspired robotics platform to form a new molecular robotics initiative at the VIS. Radhika was interviewed on another episode of Disruptive. I ask each of them about their hopes for the new initiative. First, William Shi. To me, what's exciting is the notion of, can we go from a paradigm where we're thinking about specific shapes that don't have that extreme degree of agency to something that we might call a robot? So a, a shape might do something useful like it can house other molecules or it can recognize some other molecule. So that's useful. But a more complicated assembly might do something like integrate multiple inputs and based on multiple inputs, make some decision to carry out some action. So much more sophisticated behavior that results from the combined action and coordination of many different agents together. So a transition between an individual shape to a regime where we're programming many different shapes that are communicating with each other and, and making decisions. One general way of thinking about it is just increase the sophistication. We, we're inspired by Moore's Law, where we see this historical, amazing exponential increase in sophistication of uh, integrated circuits, and that's produced the magical behavior of uh, mobile phones and uh, computers and tablets that we have today. That's amazing. Basically, none of that would have happened without the incredible increase in complexity. So with the, on the molecular scale, we're not trying to miniaturize anymore because the molecules are already small, but we're, we're trying to figure out how to build larger and larger assemblies of these very small components without the system just going completely haywire. So again, the example of, well, if you don't program your jigsaw puzzle correctly, it's just going to make a congealed mess. So it turns out that's not so easy to do. And that's what we spend a lot of our time that, thinking that about. That the more complex the structures, more the more challenge. There's yeah. more things that can go wrong. Yeah. And so, so a big challenge is figuring out how to get add more and more components and without it going completely wrong. Will you be using some of the uh, swarm robotics kinds of things that Radhika is working on? We're trying to brainstorm with Radhika to see how uh, maybe the kinds of algorithms that she's been developing might be successful. But I, I think that certainly the general theme of trying to uh, distribute tasks over, over many smaller components and then getting them to interact in a way that produces the desired behavior. So in, in general terms, we've certainly gotten together with Radhika and we, <laughs> we're trying to figure out how, how we can... Uh, best coordinate our activities. What are the challenges of uh, engaging with another field, another concentration like that? I think the uh, one of the big challenges right now is just in, in terms of the sophistication of the building blocks that people like Radhika and the robotics field 
typically their their building blocks they work with versus what we currently have available in the molecular world. So with Radhika, her frame is, well, we have these extremely sophisticated computers and mobile phones and that sort of thing. But what if we take a step back and, and take something that's uh, kind of like a crappy mobile phone that's not that powerful compared to today's best, but if we had a thousand of them and we can get them to communicate with each, each other, something really uh, functional and amazing will emerge. Even the crappy mobile phone that they're using for each individual uh, robot is still vastly more sophisticated than the kinds of uh, things we call we would call an agent today that we b- we're building out of nucleic acids. And eventually, our goal is to make things that are that functional. And we know it's possible because we have things like cells, immune cells floating around. But it's going to take us some time in order to get to that level. And so one of the challenges is how do we translate some of the insights that people in Radhika's field have to much simpler building blocks? Because we don't have building blocks that are as sophisticated as the the least sophisticated ones that she's normally dealing with. I, I think eventually we will. I, I think uh, 100 years from now, certainly, I, I believe that we will have the know-how to create tailor-made cells. Uh, we can program in the same way that we're programming microscopic robots today. You know, why is it going to take that long? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it's more difficult to work with very small things. You know, we don't have little robot arms that can manipulate things. Um, there's a lot of thermal oscillations that we don't understand how to control. It's just a different regime on the molecular scale. It's much much harder to work in, but eventually we'll have the tools to do that. It'll take time. I think having the, the metaphor of the of the robot to me, I think is is ambitious and uh, encapsulates a lot of what we're trying to do. We have these assemblies of molecules that can do things that previously we've we've only seen from products of natural evolution that cells, but that can uh, take many different molecular inputs that can sense glucose and oxygen and uh, and different things. And, and based on that, make program decisions to maybe if I see all these things, then I need to move to a different location or I need to produce this uh, this other drug. Wesley Wong sees nanoswitches already displaying a lot of the properties of molecular robots. Right now, the nanoswitch in some ways you could think of as a kind of a proto-molecular robot that you know can sense things, can respond, and can report. But, but you could imagine, if you think of those principles, you could do things that are much more sophisticated than just determining whether two molecules are bound or unbound. But I think when people think of robots, they think of machines that are designed and built by us, by humans, that can carry out tasks by responding to the environment, processing the information, and, and responding accordingly, and ideally reporting back something right. to so the user words, and, and something listening. that can do those yeah. things yeah. is a robot yeah. and, and listing them right. some ways to the user otherwise you get into these kind of right. crazy sci-fi type situations where they're on their own yes that's right and so i think a lot of the structures that we're making um you know have those same properties but are smaller and and so in a sense like even the dna nanoswitch i mean we program it yeah. we control it it responds to the environment it senses things and then and changes its topology and shape in response to that and reports that back to us. So in a sense, it's a very, very simplistic type of robot. I feel like getting the language right will hopefully help people um, think about not just what can be done or has been done, but what could be done. And I think that um, the possibilities are endless, and I feel like this kind of language will hopefully inspire us as well as others in terms of thinking, like, what can we do with these techniques to, to make the world you know, different and better than it is today? Pang Yin also sees the Molecular Robotics Initiative as an inviting pathway for the future. 
we're able to uh, program the structures dynamics and also using the structures and devices to program other functional components, including programming fluorescent, programming light to enable and very high-resolution microscopy, and programming inorganics for nanofabrication, or even programming living cells for future applications. But I think this, uh, we are really just uh, scratching the surface of uh, and, uh, what uh, molecular programming can eventually enable us to do. Pong believes this initiative grows out of the culture and environment, as well as the people that make up the Wies Institute. Working at Waze exposes one to all these fascinating ideas, inventions, discoveries. Uh, it feels like intellectual hub, and it really helps to bring the best of one's own creativity. Andy points out the Wies is not just about stimulating creativity, but also about translating intellectual breakthroughs into commercial products for the wider world. In my own lab, we recently and working with Waze and has uh, spin off a startup company called Artview to commercialize the DNA-based imaging technology. So that's when we were, t- that's when we were talking about the DNA paint and, and, and that sort of thing. That's what you're talking about. That has led to the creation of a startup. That's right. In that sense, I think uh, the ability to bridge academia with industry to enable the broader dis- uh, dissemination of innovation uh, is very powerful. And there's something uh, quite unique about this, and uh, it's really wonderful. Wesley Wong is convinced that the Vs brings out his best. I feel like, you know, everyone has potential. Everyone has specific gifts. But in order... <laughs> this sounds too corny. But it's sort of true, right? In order to actually enable those things to, to be realized, for society to benefit from the gifts that each person has, there needs to be, you know, in some sense, some enabling infrastructure in place. And I think that people at the Visa have worked very hard at trying to create the kind of infrastructure that can enable, you know, innovation, cross-disciplinary um, activities, collaborations. Uh, again, this molecular robotics initiative has grown out of, uh, you know, a close collaboration I have with some of the other people. I talk and work with William very regularly, and, and without this Vise clubhouse and infrastructure and resources available and an opportunity for us to get to know each other and work together, you know, that would have never happened. You know, for the future, I am really excited about the potential of DNA origami and other types of DNA self-assembly techniques. In, in some ways, you know, being here in Boston, part of the Vise Institute, I wonder if people in Silicon Valley felt this way shortly after the transistor was invented, because I feel like what we're doing right now probably people are doing is laying the foundation for the future. But I think at the end of the day, the types of applications that people will see from this, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, will be so much more sophisticated than, than what we're doing now um, that I feel very excited to kind of be where I am now at this point in history because the possibilities are, are, are so huge. Like many at the Vs, William Shi simultaneously focuses on two very different time horizons. We have a very strong drive to create and commercialize useful widgets on the five-year time frame, but we also have people that are dreaming about what's going to happen 20 years from now. And uh, I guess there's, I I don't know who said it first, but uh, 99% of of the technology of tomorrow is based on 1% of the technology today. And so because there's so many pressures to publish papers and produce this and that, that uh, people are presented with incentives to focus sometimes too much, I think, on the things that are only going to work in the next next few years. We need to reserve some, a lot of our resources for thinking about longer term. You've been listening to Disruptive Molecular Robotics. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been William Shi, Wesley Wong, and Pang Yin. 
You can learn more about their latest work with DNA, as well as an exciting range of other projects, at the VIS website, vis.harvard.edu. That's wyss.harvard.edu, where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the VIS site or on iTunes or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Talikas of the VIS Institute, and to J.C. Swadek in production, and to you, our listeners. I look forward to being with you again soon.